Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life. There's something wrong in the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there. Hello, friends, and welcome to The Secret Podcast with Sixth Sense Media and Service of Change. I'm your host, Dennis Nappy II, and this is the show that challenges reality, questions at which we've been taught in hopes of inspiring a new direction of thought to bring about change. We make the paranormal feel quite normal and the supernatural quite natural. This week, I've been struggling with my approach to the show. A lot of things that I want to talk about. I may have to put some of it off until next week's show. What's been eating up the headlines over the past week, obviously, is that tragic, tragic massacre in the state of Florida at a at a school. Another school shooting has happened, as we are all aware of at this point in time. And our dialogue on social media and in our own social circles uh, is going on again. Here we go. What to do to stop it. Everybody has an idea, myself included. Uh, but it's the same old argument, the same old cycle. I have a, a, a bunch of suggestions that I want to talk about that has nothing to do with... Uh, it's not the reactive approach that everybody's taking. You see, these things happen, and then people react, and they want that knee-jerk reaction, which may be a temporary fix, may make us feel good in the moment, may make us feel safe in the moment, but it's not addressing the cause of the cause of this cause of this of this problem. And that's what I'm looking at here. I've had some discussions online about things that have upset some people, and I think that's because those discussions are not the answer people are looking for. Meaning, we have it in our heads what we want to hear to get that closure to such a horrible thing. We don't want to stop and pause and look at the the greater issue at hand here. We really just want to hear either take guns, give metal detectors, arm teachers, uh, and that's pretty much it. And I don't want to say that's pretty much it, but that those are the knee-jerk reactions people that I've been seeing want to go to. And that's not necessarily the best choice. In the moment, yes, in a tactical situation, that may be what's solving this issue, but we need to think strategically. We need to think long-term. And there's things that we can do that are not violent, that are not restrictive, that are educational, that are beneficial. I think that can improve our communities. Things I've talked about on this show that I'm going to get into shortly that deal with things like meditation, conflict resolution, training for your teachers and for your students, and building a stronger community. So I'm going to talk about that on this show. It ties into the metaphysical, which is one of the underlying themes of this show, but it also ties into some very real, tangible stuff. I'm going to be relying on my experience as a soldier, a counterintelligence agent, a police officer, and an educator. Not just an educator, but an urban educator. I've worked in some very violent schools in the state of Pennsylvania. I have a lot of experience working with students with emotional problems, emotional challenges, I should say, excuse me, uh, and violence tendencies, violent tendencies. So I'm going to use that experience as I get into this show. I hope that you'll listen to it. I hope that you'll take my thoughts and feelings on what I think we can be doing differently. I hope you'll take it to heart, and I hope you'll share this with people that uh, are in a position to actually enact these changes that I think need to happen. Before I do that, uh, we're going to go to some of the news stories that are going on in the world, some of the news stories that we're finding at SixthSenseMedia.net. The platform is doing fantastically. Ray Davis, again, at the helm, pulling out interesting and different content that I I want to share with all of you on this show, and I hope you'll check out SixthSenseMedia.net on a daily basis, a weekly basis, and subscribe to the newsletter. There's a newsletter link up there now. We're going to have that uh, in the works as well. Uh, we'd love to stay in contact with you with the way social media algorithms are always changing. It's great to connect with you on social media. 
But by signing up for our newsletter, it's a guarantee that you're going to get our content and we have important things to say. Also, I need to give this one last commercial here. If you are a content creator, if you're a blogger, if you're a writer, if you're an author, if you're a YouTuber, if you're a podcaster, if you're an artist, if you're a poet, if you're a comic strip creator, or if you're something that I haven't mentioned, we have a home for you. Our aim with Sixth Sense Media is to better ourselves, better each other, and better the world. We're trying to share objective truth here. Of course, we have our own opinions and you're entitled to them, but we're trying to spread some positivity here. We talk about the scary stuff, but we try to put it in a light where, hey, here's some solutions. You don't have to be as scared as the mainstream media is telling you. If you think that fits, we'd like for you to join our team because there's strength in numbers in sharing this message, sharing this objective, and we can bring about change to counteract the negative flow of energy that's coming out of the mainstream on a regular basis. Let's put something positive. Let's put something hopeful out there. And that's what some of these articles aim to do. That's what all of our articles aim aim to do. And this first one really got me coming from Ray, came out this week. It's called, Are We Living in the Kali Yuga? I'm going to read some of this here. Uh, As Westerners are familiar with the book of Revelation and other such end-time pronouncements in the Western spiritual texts, in India, among Hindus, Sikhs, and Jains, there is the Kali Yuga. Hindus don't view time as a linear progression. Instead, they view the world as an ever-repeating cycle of creation and destruction. Each cycle has four ages. The first three... Satya, Treta, and Dvapara, I'm probably not saying that correctly, are generally viewed as positive ages. Through each age, human beings devolve from pristine spiritual state into increasingly more challenging states. The final stage, the Kali Yuga, is viewed as an age when spirituality gives way to depravity and morals give way to selfishness. This age is ruled by the demon Kali, and it is a period of increasing suffering for humanity. The Kali Yuga is the shortest and final stage, lasting 432,000 years. Though there are differences of opinion, many scholars place the beginning of the Kali Yuga on the date when Krishna left Earth. The most common date given for the departure is February 18th, 3102 BC. The Mahabharata describes Kali Yuga in the most detail. The descriptions seem ripped from our daily headlines. Okay, so this goes on a little bit more. It talks about some of the leaders in the Kali Yuga, some of the people in the Kali Yuga, the personalities. I hope that caught your attention because it certainly caught mine, but then it comes through and talks a little bit more about some of these cycles and and the parallels between right now and the Kali Yuga. It's not a doom and gloom thing. The idea is to spread awareness. Uh, You know, I feel all the time that that there's something going on, and this is going to be probably next week's show, more information about this matrix that we're living in. How I was listening to a discussion by Tom Campbell talking about how this is a This is, in fact, a virtual reality. If you don't know Tom Campbell, he was one of the co-founders of the Monroe Institute with Bob Monroe. He's also a NASA physicist. He's a credible guy doing the research into this this, uh, virtual reality, this simulation, whatever you want to call it. You know, again, those that listen to the show, I've done several discussions on this. There's lots of resources at Service to Change and building up now on SixthSenseMedia.net talking about this. It's, It's a wild idea. But a lot of stuff now makes sense. If if we're living in cycles, well, a digital universe or a, a virtual reality system would be one way to possibly explain how that happens. The system is programmed to have cycles, and these cycles have, through our electromagnetic wireless internet that we talk about that affects our behavior, it programs us to go in and out of these cycles and everything else. So that is, you know my 
perspective on how this might tie into modern interpretation today. So I think this article is worth your time. Please check it out at sixcentsmedia.net. I will have it in the show notes at servicechange.com. It's also going to be in the secret newsletter that comes out tomorrow being Sunday. Okay, the next one. This is, this is a book review by, uh, by Ray Davis. It's called Feel, Feel the Fear and Do It Away. And this is great advice, and I think this ties into what we're dealing with right now in this world. I'm just going to read this excerpt here from Ray. It says, Back in 1987, Dr. Susan Jeffers released one of the most popular self-help books in the past 50 years. It's called Feel Free and Do It Anyway. I was feeling a lot of fear and pain and doubt in my life when I first came across this book about four years later. I had allowed those feelings to paralyze me in my life. I didn't have any career, relationship, or life experiences, and I wanted and knew I was capable of having. I had allowed one particular fear and the drama that grew up around it in my life to deny what I deserved. If you're feeling that way right now, if you're not seeing the miracle you have, uh, the miracle you are because you're allowing your fears to cloud your sky, I highly recommend this book and the timelessness message for dealing with the fear that has you stuck. It has uh, a YouTube video here talking about this book, and there's also a link to purchase it on Amazon, all at sixcentsmedia.net. Check it out. It's one of our headlines right now uh, that you can see. But check this out. This ties in so nicely to... uh, what I've come across in the past week, just listening to Tom Campbell, he said basically this virtual reality system that we live within. As we go to explore consciousness and we learn to access these other levels of this, he said the system tests you. And what it tests you on is fear. And these are things I've encountered in my own life. This is a message I've had in my head over and over. I talked about uh, dreams. Was it last week or the week before? How I've been getting this message and I'm afraid to do anything with it. Fear is what hinders us in this world. It's why the mainstream is constantly putting out the things to be afraid of. Be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. Because it limits us. It limits our potential. And we focus on survival and protecting ourselves from that fear instead of just charging forward and doing what needs to get done or doing what we want to get done and facing those fears. That's the key to life. And that, I believe, I haven't read this book yet, but that's what I believe this empowers us to do. And that's what we want to do here with Sixth Sense Media is empower us, understand the fear, and then have the strength to work through it. Okay, so check that out at sixcentsmedia.net. But back to what Tom Campbell was saying in, in this uh, interview I was listening to this week. He said, the system's going to test you. It's going to give you scary experiences, and you have to be able to fight through it. Not fight through it. You have to be able to work through it. Prime example, if you're trying to have an out-of-body experience, some of the early stages of an out-of-body state, and I've experienced this myself, is the sleep paralysis. Your body can't move, your mind's awake, you start to panic, and a lot of times we panic ourselves to the point where we wake up. I've done that my whole life. I've also encountered these shadow beings, and I suspect they have something to do with this larger system. They still may be feeding off of us, as I suspect, but they may be intentionally there by this larger system to either force us to grow or to remain stagnant. So we have to face that fear. Now, I have faced that fear, and I have made these things go away, and I have accessed, to some extent, what what lies beyond. So please keep that in mind and keep that running through your mind. What are you afraid of, and how is that fear hindering you as we move forward, especially with when we, right now, what we're going to get into talking about what's going on with these school shootings and these, these horrible tragedies. You know, I, I don't think there's a, uh, a worse fear, especially as a parent, than seeing these school shootings unfold. Trying to put myself in the situation of those parents, it, the worst thing imaginable, hands down. It's the scariest thing in the world. And there were 
some statistics going around um, that this was the 18th school shooting this year. It's only the middle of February. That's a lot. Now, keep in mind, one school shooting is one too many. Um, and, and I found with, with this, I, I really wanted to stay away from it publicly because I, I didn't want to get into an online debate because things are lost when you put something on the internet as opposed to having a conversation. And people are raw and people are emotional, rightfully so. But you have people that are, their tempers are shorter, I've, I believe, with situations like this. And I get it, justifiably so. So I, for many reasons, I wanted to stay away from this subject. But I, I came across an article uh, that a friend shared. And what basically what the article reported was that that 18 statistic is a misleading statistic that there, in fact, have not been 18 school shootings. Now, when you think of a school shooting, you think a gunman goes into a school intent on killing students and staff. That's what everybody's afraid of right now, a gunman with an objective of killing students and staff. Now, in that, according to this article, I have it linked in the show notes, um, according to this article, those statistics covered every incident with a firearm discharging in a school and classified it as a school shooting. Well, in there, there was an incident of a a young preschool child who walked up to a a security officer who was sitting in his chair, and he squeezed the trigger. Uh, Shame on that officer for poor firearm discipline, but the round went into the floor and nobody was hurt. That counted as a school shooting. Another incident was a uh, criminal justice student in class thought the weapon was unloaded and safe, and he picked it up and squeezed the trigger and fired it into a wall. Nobody was hurt, but that was classified as a school shooting. Other instances involved a robbery in a school parking lot. I believe the school was abandoned. Another one involved, or maybe there was a suicide in a school parking lot, and the school had been closed, I think, for months. But they still classified that as a school shooting. That's a whole lot, that's a much different number. What they ultimately said was, well, actually, there were three school shootings this year, which is still three too many. I'm not taking away from the horribleness of it. But when you push a number like 18 school shootings as a former law enforcement officer, as a former intelligence soldier, as a, as a current teacher and a parent, 18 in two months sets the panic button. It hits the panic alarm. We need to act right now. Not that we don't have to act, but there's a difference between 18 and 3 because 18 is a very, 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 very scary trend, which in my head as a parent, again, says, oh my gosh, this is hitting my school tomorrow. I was thinking about taking my kid out of school. That's the panic that I had going in my head, okay? When you realize it's not 18, it's still a problem we need to address. It's still a problem we need to address immediately, but it changes that knee-jerk reaction. Because this, this is how that manipulation works. Oh my gosh, this is, this is this major crisis. 18 schools, kids are being shot and killed every day. We need to do something about this. Well, guess what? You know, violence goes on every single day. Um, you know, and, and we haven't found a way to change that yet. Okay? Now, these three school shootings, all horrible events, there's dialogue now, people going back and forth on what the best option is. Some people want to take away their guns. I saw an article the other day, uh, a person saying he was well-trained and proficient with his AR-15, 
but he felt, based on the last school shooting, that there was no need for anybody to have what he called a tool, uh, an assault rifle, um, and he turned it into the local sheriff's department. He donated it to them. In my opinion, I think that was a very stupid idea. And I don't make that statement lightly. But he's a lawful, legal gun owner, as is myself. I'm not going out shooting up schools. I know that in the event of something like that happening, I have the training and the know-how to do something about it. Without my weapon, I am less capable of doing something about that. Now, here's another example of why I don't want to give up any of my firearms. A few years ago, we had a sniper target a state police officer. He shot and killed a state trooper in my area, and he was hiding in the woods near my home. Well, I, was, I felt a little bit better knowing that I was armed and capable of protecting my family from an assailant who was running through the woods with a rifle capable of hitting my family and I. There's a lot of things that can happen where a weapon for self-defense may come in handy. So I don't think giving up our guns and giving them back to the government is a good idea especially because I know many of my listeners out there mistrust the government. And I'm not saying, I'm not getting into any of that right now. But why would that, that's the whole reason why the Second Amendment exists, is in case the government became tyrannical, we had the means to defend ourselves and put in a new government. Now, let me give my disclosure. I'm not advocating that for anybody in the government that's listening to this show right now. But that's, one of the reasons why that was placed into the Second Amendment in the Bill of Rights. Other options that people are talking about is, well, let's arm our teachers. Now, I, I have mixed feelings about this. And I'll, and I'll, get, and I'll, get, I'll get into that in a minute. As an, as an educator, as a teacher, my job is not to go after a shooter. My job is to educate our students, to teach them. Okay? My job is to empower and motivate and help them face those challenges that life throws their way. If they're now knowing that I'm carrying a gun, I believe that changes that relationship that I have with my students. It also changes my approach to things in the school. For example, fights happen in schools. And if I'm carrying a firearm and I go and break up that fight and those kids all of a sudden turn on me, now what was a less than lethal situation has now become a deadly force situation because I have a firearm on me and now I'm engaged in a physical fight with students who could get a hold of that firearm and who could use it against me or other students. This is how cops train. This is how cops think. This is what we're told with weapon retention. When you're carrying a gun, this is something you need to be mindful of every situation that you get involved in. So this is part of the training that teachers would have to go through in addition to all the other stuff that teachers are already required to deal with. But on the flip side, as somebody who does have tactical training and experience, I think all the time, oh my gosh, if a firearm goes off in this building, I wish I was armed if somebody comes in and starts shooting because I have the training to go and deal with that a lot quicker than it would take a SWAT team or police officers to get the call and then respond. I'm already in the building. I know the building is my home field advantage. You know, so I have all these thoughts going through my head as well. 
but not every teacher has training as a military, uh, you know, as as a soldier and as a police officer. I don't know what the answer is, but I don't think that that's the best answer. Is well, because we're still not fixing the problem. We're we're reacting. We're training to react instead of being proactive and preventing it from happening. You know, the other option I saw was well, we're going to put metal detectors in, in all the schools. Well, you know what? That sucks. I've worked in, in the inner cities where it's very violent, and in the mornings the kids have to go through the metal detectors. And they stand in line, and they go through the metal detectors, and then the security guard wands their body and opens their bag and looks through their bags. And I've talked to some people, and they say, you know what? I'd rather do that knowing that my kid was safe. And I get it because it's a knee-jerk reaction. But the flip side of that, as Chris Rock said, well, everybody outside of school knows you don't have a gun now, which should be the case anyway, but some of these neighborhoods are pretty rough. In addition, the faces. I remember my first year in Philly, and the kids were going through metal detectors, and they were getting wanded, and just the look of defeat and of complacency, it was like I was in a futuristic 1984 movie, And I felt I didn't like what I saw. These are children. These are children who have been conditioned that it's okay to search you, even though under the Fourth Amendment you're protected from unlawful searches and seizures. Now, suspecting that somebody may have a gun or suspecting that, you know, we're going to use this as a deterrent, knowing that you're going to get searched when you come in the building— I'm sorry, that's a violation of privacy. Now, you could say, well, it's private property, and you know, or it's a federal building or a government building, so in order to enter this building, you have to get searched. I get it. I get how you can get around those laws, but the conditioning it does to our children. When I was a child, if I would have gotten searched by a police officer, it would have traumatized me. Children should not be okay with that lifestyle, and we need to change the world we live in. I get it. This is where we're coming to. We need to do things to change the world we live in because under the guise of safety, under you need to be afraid, we're giving up our freedoms. Because what happens with a search and other things get found out that may not necessarily would have been found out before. You, you, you feel like you have less privacy. I just think I, I didn't like what I saw with my students. You know, <clears throat> I, left, I left law enforcement because... I didn't want to be a reactive force anymore. Call after call, I'd show up for domestic abuse, for drug overdose, for suicide, for suicide in progress, for physical fight, for theft, for robbery, all these problems. And I'd show up, and I'd encounter these people who had committed the crimes, and I'd talk with them. And I'd always wonder, like, where what went wrong? Where did... Did you stray from the path that you don't have a job now, that you feel you have to steal, or that you are so angry that you had to hit your kid or you had to hit your wife or your husband? What happened? And I noticed that once I could talk with people, they were, I realized you're just a regular person like me. You just you made some bad decisions. Is there a way we can train you, teach you, help you, support you, so you don't make those bad decisions again. Because I, I used to think of myself as like the garbage man of society at first as a cop. Because you show up and you deal with the problems that nobody wants to deal with. you got to take out, quote, the trash. And I wasn't okay with that. And I said, you know what, let me see if I... I want to adopt a philosophy of recycling. I talked about this in my first book. 
want to see if we can recycle instead because sometimes somebody committed a crime, you put them in jail, now they got a record, they can't get a job, you know, they lose their house, they break up, they end up, you know, it becoming estranged from their children, their family, and then the kids grow up and they have problems and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. We're not recycling. We're throwing out and creating more waste in the process. It doesn't, it does not work. There's not enough support services and the support services we do have through the government, they're overworked and, under, overworked and underfunded. It's, it's not what we need. And one day, I was ending my shift and I, I got a call come, I had a call come across the radio. I'm ready to go home. It'd been a long day. Suicide in progress, 12-year-old boy. Come across the radio, 22-01-10-9, which means that's my call sign. Say that again. Suicide in progress, 12-year-old boy. 22-01. Can you say that name, that age one more time, please? 12 years old. 10-4, show me a route. I zip over there. 12-year-old kid trying to kill himself. That's a horrible thing. I get there pretty quickly. I walk up. His mother's standing there outside of a vehicle. I'm very cautious. I always, you know, as a police officer, I'm trained, could this be an ambush? Could this be a setup? Where's the kid? What kind of weapon does he have? You know, um, so I get there. Mom's there. She says, he's in the car. He's locked himself in the car with a butcher knife. I said, okay. I call over the radio, tell units to slow their response. I'm okay for now. Give me a restriction, which means nobody else talk on the radio in case I have a problem. I walk up to the car, and there's this kid sitting in the seat, and he's angry. I said, where's the knife, buddy? He wouldn't tell me. So I said, all right, well, I can do this the cop way. Mom doesn't have the keys. I can smash this window, drag this kid out, and probably rough him up a little bit, and take him to the crisis center and drop him off and let him know, like, don't mess with the police. Don't do stupid stuff like this because you're going to face these consequences and really scare the crap out of him, right? Use that fear because I'm a cop, I'm in uniform, and, and let me scare him. That, and that was the first thought that went through my head. And I thought, well, what impact is this going to have with the kid? And I had a pretty good success rate of dealing with people that were, were having a mental health crisis. People that were potentially violent, often I'd be able to talk them down. I enjoy doing that because I know the alternative is, well, you're already having a crisis and now you're going to get hit with a taser. You're going to get beat up a little bit and put in handcuffs because you're a danger to yourself and the people around you. And it's my job to protect you and the people around you. The only way I can do that is if I put you on the ground and put handcuffs on you and that's not nice. So I, I've developed you know, what, what in the law enforcement world we call verbal judo and was able to talk to people quite well. So I said, let me try my verbal judo on this kid. And I start talking to him. And I get him to tell me a little bit why about why he's upset. And, and this is all in my in my first book. And he tells me, you know, his dad doesn't live with them, and mom is broke. They lived, they were living in a trailer, and mom was broke, and she was selling the car that dad had left for him. He was devastated. I want to be a mechanic like my dad. I was going to work on this car. I'll be sixteen in a couple of years, and now I've got nothing. And he was just he was losing it. So I talked him into, you know, I just listened to him. He just wanted to be heard. And through our conversation, I developed a rapport with him, and I got him to open the door. Now, again, problem's over. I can grab this kid out. I can throw him against the car. I can handcuff him, take him to the crisis center, and be done, because now I'm about a half hour in over my shift. I get the door open. I call over the radio. I said, all right, no more units needed. I got this. We're good to go. I get the kid out. I maintain control. I still 
maintained my safety because that's what my training tells me. So I took control of his wrists gently, but in a position where if the kid pulled out a knife or something, I, I had it under control. And I put his hands behind his back and I told him, I said, now listen, I need to search you for your safety and for mine. Where's the knife? It's under the seat, he told me. I said, okay, I still need to search you. Do you understand what's happening? Yes, Officer Nappy, I understand. I searched the kid. He was clean. Turned him around. Didn't handcuff him yet. I said, all right, let's talk for a little bit. And we, we had a little bit more of a conversation, and I built that rapport a little bit more because I knew once I told him we have to go to the crisis center, usually when you tell people that, that's when they freak out again. But I wanted to treat this kid like a person because I didn't want to traumatize him any further. So I had that discussion with him and I said, now listen, I hear what you're saying and I gave him some advice and I said, now I have to take you to the crisis center. Some doctors need to talk to you to make sure you're okay and it seems like you are. I was trying to build him up. I said, but we have to go there. Is that okay with you? I gave him a choice. He didn't really have a choice, but I gave him the choice. He, and he said, I will only go if you go with me. And I said, that's not a problem. You can ride in my car, but per our department policy, I have to put handcuffs on you. And he says, that's fine. And he, he turned around and he let me cuff him. I took him to the crisis center. As soon as we got out of the car, I took the handcuffs off of him. Mom followed us and the three of us went in there together. Doctor comes in 10 minutes later to talk to him. And he says, look, I'm not talking to the doctor. This officer Nappy comes in with me. And I went in with, with that little boy. And I, and I started the conversation by telling the doctor and his mother what he had told me, which he hadn't told anybody before. Mom didn't realize just how upset he was about this stuff. And the doctor ended up giving him the clean bill of health, you know, gave him a follow-up appointment and sent him home with his mom. Actually, he asked if I could drive him home. At this point, it was dark out. I was like four hours beyond my shift. But I did. I took him home in the police car so we get a ride, you know, um... And it was a neat experience for him. And it was a neat experience for me. And it was such a powerful experience. I said, I'm leaving law enforcement. After 11 years, I left law enforcement. And I became a teacher in the inner city. And what I saw in that city, Philadelphia, appalled me. It terrified me. And it took me five years to put it all into writing, explaining my journey and my perspective and what I had learned about our youth and our inner city, our inner cities, and what the government is doing about it, which is not enough. I wrote that book, Service, as a warning, saying our children are in danger, and our children are being influenced by, by people and ideas that are counterproductive to a, a health, healthy society. Our children hate authority. Our children hate police officers. And our children have access to guns. And our children won't think twice to get violent with one another. That's what I saw. My first year that I detail in my book for reasons so people could have read that book and understood just what dire straits were in can see how not that society is deteriorating. Society has deteriorated in these communities. It's a war zone. It's poverty, it's drug abuse, it's sexual abuse, it's all going on. Now, traditionally, our school shooters don't fit those profiles. 
in terms of the, the environment that they're in. The schools are not usually these inner city urban schools. But these problems are still there because I've taught in several schools. I've, I've worked with students with emotional challenges and, and mental health challenges and academic challenges. And time and time again, with the exception of a handful of kids, I've found that if you allow the students to be heard, to feel empowered, you can have a breakthrough. And my first year, I was struggling with cop versus teacher because my students were so violent and aggressive towards me. I really, really struggled with it. But I wanted to be a teacher. And over time, I still maintained my police instincts, but I learned new strategies and I learned new tactics to the point now where I haven't had a kid get violent or aggressive with me in, in a very long time. Because I know now how to talk to most students. Now, I'm, that's not saying I can shut down every kid who comes in intent on getting violent. But I've got a pretty good track record. And this isn't me tooting my own horn. This is something I see teachers do every single day. With limited resources. With limited support. Not enough mental health training, awareness, and resources to help these students. I realized that's the greatest threat to the security of our country and of our world. And it's the greatest weapon that we have in improving the condition of this world and stopping the cycles of violence and poverty and everything that we're seeing is through education, quality education, not through this standardized test crap that they're cramming down our throats, which they're using to dismantle education, which I'll get into on another show. It's in my book. I gave that backstory because I think it's important for all of us to hear. I've been teaching for over 10 years now. I've worked with a lot of students with a lot of difficulties. I've come into some research through doing the show and everything that I think can be the change that we're looking for. It's in a completely different direction. You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. That's why I'm trying not to get into Facebook debates. That's why I tried to share that article online that shows that, hey, you're being manipulated and misled once again. We're not going to solve this in a gun control debate. We're not going to solve this with a metal detector debate. We may solve it with some of the discussions if we need to reform mental health care, but we're still having the same debate and nothing's happening. We need to move beyond the social media platform and we need to try something differently. And I've been advocating for this on my show for quite some time and I'm going to try to see if I can take it to the next level by implementing it where I'm at. And I've done a little bit of this already in some of my classrooms, but I think we're at the point where we need to start trying something different. Now, I did a show probably a year or two ago now on what's, what's called the Maharishi Effect. And the Maharishi effect was a study that was done like the 70s, 80s time frame. And ultimately, what they found was that cities that had a population of people that practiced meditation, transcendental meditation, where the population of transcendental meditation practitioners was 1% or greater of the total population of the community, they found reductions in things like crime and violence. Let that sink in for a minute. 1% of the population practicing meditation 
was able to influence the entire community. Now, that sounds crazy. How does that work? That sounds like voodoo, metaphysical, hocus-pocus stuff. Well, there's actually science behind this now that I've been talking about, screaming about on my show. If you look at the Institute of Heart Math, the Institute of Heart Math now has published studies where they can measure the heart's electromagnetic field. And what they've found is that things like empathy and human emotion are communicated through that electromagnetic field, like a wireless internet. Through our hearts, we are constantly communicating and contributing to the electromagnetic fields that surrounds everybody in this world. So now when you think about transcendental meditation, 1% of the population, what they're actually doing is changing the electromagnetic output in a given area. They're changing the energy. And I don't mean that in the metaphysical, spiritual, I mean I do, but there's science behind it. We can change that energy. The same way if you think about it is if you spray certain chemicals in the air, they're going to have an effect on you. If you ingest a drug into your body, what's it doing? Well, the drug's going to alter the electrical signals running through your brain. Well, electromagnetism alters the electrical signals running into your heart, which run into your brain. It modifies human behavior. I've done a lot of shows on this. Okay? That's a brief overview of the research behind this. What if we just took 1% of the population and taught them meditation within a given school? That would probably change the climate. And I'm saying don't stop at 1%, but make that your target to begin with, and then escalate that. And I have some examples here of that. That might change the school climate on a, on a lot of different levels here. Teaching the mindfulness for our students. I am working with a program through Heart Math right now with my kids, uh, and I am starting to see results. But this Maharishi effect, I have a website. It's a summary of 13 published studies. It's from mum.edu. And I'm going to share it in the show notes. But one of the studies is titled Studies on the City and Metropolitan Level. It's a summary here. 24 U.S. cities, a retrospective study. This study was of all 24 cities in the United States with populations over 10,000, with 1% or more of their population practicing the Transcendental Meditation Program by 1972. These experimental cities were compared to 24 control cities, which were selected by an independent investigator prior to collection of the last several years of data. Matching variables were total population, college population, and geographic region. In the control cities, less than 0.7% of the population had learned the TM technique. Stepwise discriminate analysis showed that 1% and control cities were similar on per capita income, percentage of persons aged 15 to 29, stability of residents, percentage unemployed, and percentage of families with income below poverty level. The two groups of cities did differ on median years education and pre-intervention crime rate slope, which were controlled statistically by analysis of covariance. The study examined change in the FBI total crime index in 1973, the year after the 1% cities reached 1%, and studied the change in crime rate trend for six post-intervention years from 1972 to 1977. Change in crime rate in 1973 was assisted by the difference in the actual 1973 crime rate from the level prediction by linear regression on the six-year pre-intervention baseline period from 1967 to 1972. Change in crime rate trend was was assessed by comparing the slope of regression to the slope post-intervention period with the slope of the pre-intervention period. Okay, that's a whole lot of reading. Uh, almost done here. 
1973, there was a significant decrease in crime rate by 24% in 1% cities relative to controls. In addition, the post-intervention slope of crime trend for 1% cities decreased compared to an increase in the slope in the control cities. During the post-intervention period, the mean slope of change in crime rate for the 1% cities was not significantly different from zero, while the slope for the control cities was significantly greater than zero. Okay? So there's more to this. There's several other studies there. This warrants our attention. I'm sure you have questions. I'm sure you can shoot, you know, possible holes in this. Obviously, as a good investigator, you should be critical of this. Start here. See if you can find the holes in it. And if you can't, then why aren't we learning this? Why aren't we teaching this in school? So that's step one, as I propose, we start teaching transcendental meditation to our students in schools. Even just meditation, yoga and tai chi. Now, uh, I came across an article from Forbes. I'd seen these, this information floating around on the internet. Um, this is from Forbes.com, October 18th, 2016. Science shows meditation benefits children's brains and behavior. So a piece on Upworthy.com last month featured a Baltimore school that's replaced the classic sit in your seat and suffer detention with a more progressive and more, and more effective form. One where kids learn to meditate. Far from the classic method of hoping the kids will spontaneously reevaluate their own behavior through punishment, teaching kids to focus on their breath and on the present moment may have a lot more value in the long run. But as one reader pointed out, teaching meditation outside of detention by infusing it into the school day as a matter of course is even better and may help kids avoid the things that land them in detention in the first place. Okay, So they said the research on meditation and development, development brain in kids is... Uh, not quite as as robust as it is in kids, but it's a starting it's starting to take off. Here are some of the benefits that research tells us meditation and mindfulness can offer kids. I'm just going to read the headings. You can go back and read the full article. Increased attention, a bump in attendance and grades in school, a reprieve from outside trauma, better mental health, self awareness and self regulation, social emotional development. Okay, go back and read that article. I have it in the links at sixcentsmedia.net and in the show notes at servicechange.com and in the secret newsletter. Now, I found the original article from September 22nd, 2016. This one's at upworthy.com and it says the school, this school replaced detention with meditation. And you already understand what they did. Basically, when instead of housing kids in detention, they created a, like a mindfulness room and they put the kids uh, in that mindfulness room and taught them how to meditate and as a result I'll have the links to this so you can read it because my uh, computer's freezing up right now as a result of the creation of this room they said within the year the next two years following it suspensions I believe went down to zero and attendance and grades improved in the school there's something to this I've been, I've been rolling this out and teaching this to my students, the heart math program that they have. They have a biofeedback software that's real easy. It's got games the kids play, and it teaches them to be mindful. And it talks about, um, you know, charging up your internal battery, how to deal with conflict in a healthy way, and how to de-escalate afterwards. It's got all these great techniques that it can teach our children. Now, imagine if we taught our children to deal with their emotions, to deal with their feelings, and we have those children that are feeling like they want to shoot up a school. This may reach them. This may be a tool that this is what they use to help people with trauma. And the kids are getting this in school in a way that's not 
punishment, in a way that's not condescending, in a way that's, hey, everybody's learning how to do this because this makes you a better student, makes you a better person, it makes you a better human being, it makes you a better member of this community. I think we can change the world that way. And I think that that can drastically reduce these school shooting incidents. Because with that mindfulness, you'll be able to have a conversation with students about mental health. You'll be able to train our students to recognize, instead of bully, recognize, we have all these anti-bullying campaigns, and bullying still going on, it's because it's after the fact. Instead of getting to that bully, without even realizing you may be getting to that bully, and teaching them how to cope with their own pain, their own frustration, which causes them to then lash out and bully other kids. We may be able to deal with that problem before it becomes a problem through meditation. And then the next piece that I think we should incorporate into all of our schools is some form of conflict resolution or peer mediation program. Now, I, ha- I was first certified in this when I was a junior in high school. And I thought that peer mediation and conflict resolution meant that the school was going to train me on some awesome ninja moves to jump in the middle of a fight and break it up. And I was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. It's no secret, no mystery why I ended up wanting to become a cop and a police officer, right? That was my thought. Like, oh, this is cool. And when I got into this training, there was nothing hands-on like that. What it was was basically teaching you how to listen to people. And that is probably the single most best training I've had in my life, and I've had a lot of training. But conflict resolution teaches two students, or teaches one student, to mediate a problem between two arguing parties. So the training I went through after I had it, then I'd get a case file. Student A is having an argument with student B. So I go in, and through active listening, I set my ground rules. Hey, here's the rules. Do you agree to the rules? Yes. Do you agree to the rules? Yes. Meaning you're not going to name call, you're not going to argue, you're not going to physically fight, you're not going to shout. They both agree to the rules, and they both have to agree to work to try to solve the problem. And then we go through the steps. We go through the process. And it's something you can teach kids in middle school to do. All right, student A, please tell me what your problem is. Why are you upset today? And they go through and they tell me their problem. Now, active listening, what they taught me, okay, I need to paraphrase their statement back to them. So let me be clear. Is this what you're saying? I'm not putting my opinion in. I'm not putting a spin on it. I'm asking if that's what they're saying. Yes. The next question I ask them, How did that make you feel? And I keep questioning them until they give me some real, raw feelings. Because now the person listening to them goes, I didn't realize that made you sad. I didn't realize when I made that joke, it reminded you of your relative that just died. I didn't mean it that way. I'm sorry. And so many times that would happen. Then I go through the process with the other person and let them tell their side of the story through the same thing. How did that, and how does this situation make you feel? The other person goes, well, I didn't realize that. And nine times out of ten, we solve the problem. We write up a contract, they sign it, they shake hands. Sometimes they say, you know what, I'm still upset with you. And I say, well, can we at least agree to disagree? Can we agree that we're not going to fight it out? That if you have a problem that needs to be talked about, you'll come back here and we'll do it again. And it worked. It worked. And I was a kid. And I used that when I was dealing with People, when I was in the military, when I was overseas, I use that every day as a police officer. You show up at a domestic incident, and instead of just screaming at people and saying, stop yelling, ah, whatever, 
I'm in charge. I could say, hey, tell me what happened. You tell me what happened. And some healing can happen. I still may have to make an arrest because a crime was committed. But some healing had happened because we had that mediation. I've used it countless times as a teacher. And I think if our students learned that process, it would be invaluable because right now our students don't know how to talk to each other. In my experience, you know how to get on the, online and spread rumors and talk garbage and then get in each other's face and start a fight. We need to give them the skills to deal with the emotions that come with being a teenager. They don't have that anymore. Meditation, conflict resolution. I guarantee we start implementing that in every single school. I'm not saying there will never be a school shooting again. I am saying that these instances of bullying and violence will decrease drastically. And we will be stronger and in a better position to have a discussion, which needs to happen now, about how to move forward and address potential threats potential school violence threats. Now, if you've got all these kids that are mindful, they are your eyes and ears. We need to train our students. Hey, when the student seems off, let us know about it. And we need to handle it. And then we need to be careful in how we handle that because sometimes the kid may be having a bad day but may not be a school shooter. So we need to be mindful in how we address these. We need to investigate these threats with all due diligence. But we need to be mindful as well that this kid may, in fact, have made those statements but he may just be a kid in crisis that needs help. And if he hasn't pulled the trigger yet, then he still can be helped. And then maybe not. There are kids out there who are sociopathic. You do encounter them. We need a plan on what to do, what criteria needs to be met when we encounter a student who we know someday is going to do something horrible. Because that, it seems like with this last one, there's been a pattern. What, and the FBI was called, the school was aware, everybody was aware, but they didn't, we weren't able to do anything. We need a plan. Okay, How do we get that plan? We need to go back and have town hall meetings. These town hall meetings need to have teachers with a wide array of experiences. We need to have special ed teachers there. We need to have guidance counselors there. We need to have mental health experts there, mental health professionals there. Police representatives from the police department should be there, and not just the leadership level, down at the, at the patrol level should be there as well. Principals, administrators need to be there. And also we need our legislatures there. The state and the federal legislature, our representatives, need to be there. And they need to hear it. And, and we should have parents there as well, forgive me. And you know what? We should even have a, represent, a representation of students there because this affects them as well. And address this holistically. What resources can you bring? What resources can you bring? And let's talk it out. But we need to come to this saying, take you know, your idea on how this needs to be solved, and you need to table that for a minute. Bring it to the table and present it, but you need to be open-minded that somebody else may have another idea that may complement your idea or may be better than your idea. But stop going on there saying, oh, President Trump, you need to fix this, because you know what? He's not going to fix it. And making those statements isn't going to solve the problem. It's not going to help anything. It's just going to add to the drama and the turmoil, turmoil that is yet another issue that divides us further as a nation. Now, for those of you who understand my conspiracy-minded brain and all of this, this is part of the agenda. This is part of the game. Ruin education and further divide us on issues like this and then continue to, to hit us with fear so then we fight over the possible solutions. 
I think this is a pretty viable solution. I've got a decent amount of experience that I think at least gives some credibility that warrants this of you sharing this idea or sharing this podcast with somebody else and saying, hey, what do you think of this? Can we do something about this? Can we do something with this? Now, I didn't get in too much to what do we do in the event that a shooting takes place. I do have a book that I wrote that's at, you know, it's available on Amazon. It's available through Sixth Sense Media. Um, it's like two ninety nine on Kindle. It's the Urban Educator's uh, Survival Guide, uh, School Teachers in Violent Classrooms. And it's not just about school shootings. It's about how to deal with school-based violence, how to prevent school violence, how to train your students to react when you're dealing with a violent situation so they don't become part of the problem, they don't become a statistic, how you can then process the violence after it happens so you make sure you don't get yourself into trouble, how to write a report. It's got all this information in there in this short little quick guide. This I'm, I wrote this because I want to help. I was so upset. My first three books were about education and how we can make it better. Please check it out. Send it, send it to a teacher friend. I, this, I'm trying to help here. I don't, I don't know what else I can be doing. But I believe with every part of me that we can do better and we can change it. And we don't even necessarily need some legislature who, in my opinion, continues to fail us to step in and tell us what to do. That, we keep asking for that. Tell us what to do. Tell us what's going to be safe. And everybody fights it. Don't take my guns. Take my guns. Don't give us metal detectors. Give us metal detectors. That's not helping. We're still fighting over it. Let's take a step back. Let's try something different. And the results may surprise us. Because remember, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, yet expecting different results. Let's do something different and manifest those different results. All right, my friends. It's a tough subject to tackle, but I'm glad I had this discussion. I'm glad I got it out. I'll tell you, I couldn't sleep last night. I tried to do the show last night. I just, I didn't have it in me talking about this subject because it's so personal to me. I was having dream after dream, and I I think I had two or three dreams, and these ideas came to me in dreams. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm going to do, I did this show the way I did today to talk about the things that I talked about with the meditation. It all fits. It all ties in and it can all help. I believe that it can. So let's go out there. Let's face that fear and recognize that we have more control than we realize no matter what capacity we're in and let's do something about it. Thanks so much for listening, my friends. Don't forget to check us out at sixcentsmedia.net, facebook.com slash the six cents media, Twitter at six underscore cents underscore media. Big thank you to my good friend Ray Davis for the being the king of content once again this week, which has been filling up on our social media feeds uh, as well and on on our uh, sixcentsmedia.net homepage. Please sign up for our newsletter. It's the best way to stay in touch with us as well. Don't forget you can find us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Google Play. 
TuneIn Radio and wherever else you have your podcast feeds that are connected to, please check us out. I've also uh, just started uploading content to the uh, my YouTube channel. The links are at serviceofchange.com. I'm going to put them up today at sixcentsmedia.net as well if you're a YouTuber and you want to check me out on that on that capacity. I have started backloading shows and I'm putting these more current shows up there as well. So it's another place that you can access uh, content from The Secret Podcast. Please check it out. Please like, please share, please comment. It helps grow the show and I would greatly appreciate it. That's all the time I have, my friends. This has been another episode of the Secret Podcast, where small changes among the masses can have a massive impact around the world. I encourage you to be that change. Never stop questioning. Keep open mind. Thank you. Thank you.